welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where we delve into the dynamic world of in-house legal teams and pioneers in legal leadership. I'm your host, Cynthia Loren, and in today's episode, we're thrilled to have Sterling Miller with us. Sterling is a luminary in the legal field, holding an impressive portfolio as an experienced GC, Chief Compliance Officer, and Data Privacy Attorney. Not only is he a legal expert, but he's also a prolific writer and thought leader, authoring a number of insightful books, which we're going to talk about today, and being a regular contributor to Thomson Reuters. He currently serves as CEO and Senior Counsel at Hilgers Graben, PLLC. Sterling, it's an absolute honor to have you on the show. Welcome and thank you for joining us on today's podcast. Oh, thank you. That was that was such a wonderful introduction. That feels like my mom wrote it, but thanks. <laughs> we aim to please. We aim to please. So, Sterling, I'm really keen for us to dive into your journey because you've had quite an interesting journey to where you are today. So, can you talk to us a little bit about the various positions that you've held and that have shaped your path that's ultimately culminated in you being the CEO of Hilgers Graben? Sure. Uh, interesting question. It's been a windy path. So, I started at a law firm in St. Louis after law school and ended up in the litigation group, starting in corporate, but moved over to litigation because I loved talking and being in court. And that was a lot of fun. But after I got married, so about six, five or six years into that career, my wife is from Dallas and we decided to move here, which is where I currently am. And I got a job at American Airlines uh, in their in-house legal department uh, in the uh, litigation and regulatory section. And if I had to take one thing away from my time at American, I think that's where I first learned how to be an in-house lawyer and the skills of being an outside attorney uh, are very different than what you need to succeed uh, in-house. And while I was at American, I did a lot of work for their technology subsidiary, which was called Sabre. And eventually, after a few years there, they spun Sabre out and they needed to form a legal department just for Sabre. And they asked me if I wanted to, to go along. And I would say my, at my time, my first time at Sabre, what I learned was to raise my hand, to own things, to volunteer. And I raised my hand and said, hell yeah, I'm going to go and get in on the ground floor of a brand new legal department. You just, you don't get opportunities like that all the time. So I decided that I was going to take the risk and jump over. Sabre owned Travelocity, which I'm sure a lot of the listeners have heard of. And Travelocity needed a general counsel, and they asked me if I would fill that role, which sounded very exciting and interesting to me. So I I took that role, and that is where I really learned the ropes of how to be a general counsel, all the different things that go into not just the legal issue side of that job, but the operations side of running 
uh, a legal department. And I learned how important it is to talk to executives. I also learned there's not a lot of rules. So <laughs> when you are in charge of the legal department, you can pretty much do whatever you want. And I've always been someone who, not in a bad way, but I, I, well, hey, they're not telling me what I have to do. So I'm going to try this and I'm going to try that. And we tried a lot of things. Most importantly, how to market a legal department to the business, which is something that I found uh, really interesting and exciting and fun. And I don't know how common that was at the time, but for me, that was a real eye-opener that you could actually go out and sell the legal department to the business. And that's what we did. And when the GC at Sabre retired, we were semi-autonomous at Travelocity. They brought me back over to Sabre to be the general counsel of the holding company. So we integrated the Travelocity legal department. So I had a global legal department and I learned, I would say there are a couple things. One, to think globally, try not to keep my focus solely on the U.S., uh, which was great. And I think I have been able to carry that forward. I also learned to be humble, even though I was the general counsel and ultimately general counsel of a publicly traded company. I didn't know everything. And it, it was on me to tell people, can you ask people, can you help me? Can you help me understand this? And I think that resonated not only with folks on my team, but with people in the company that I was willing to not pretend that I knew every answer to everything in the world and ask for help and try to learn from that. Uh, so that was great. Uh, we had an IPO at Sabre, and then I retired <laughs> for the first time after that IPO. And uh, I started doing some part-time work for Hilgers Graben, which was a, a, been a very small firm started by some friends of mine. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I had an opportunity to go back in-house, which I really love being an in-house lawyer. That was at Marketo, which was based in Silicon Valley in, in the San Francisco area. And that is where I got to put literally everything I had learned into practice. It was completely my department. I'd already been writing the blog. I'd written a couple of books already. And now it was a laboratory for me to say, okay, you've been talking about this. How does it really work? You know, is it all going to work again? And it did, which was really exciting. So I got to put it all into practice. We sold that company to Adobe. My mom doesn't think I can hold a job. If you yeah, <laughs> listed a lot of places I've been, I've been telling her it's okay. And I had a decision point, Cynthia, and that was I could stay in-house, had lots of opportunities, or I could go back to the law firm. And one of the really interesting, I think, decision points in my life was I decided to go back and go to a law firm. Mm -hmm. uh, because there's just, there's something about our model, how the services that we offer that I just believed would be incredibly valuable to in-house lawyers. And I wanted to be in on the ground floor and I wanted to be the one pitching that to people that, you know, were my peers or colleagues uh, in the past. And that has turned out to be in, in, uh, a very good decision. So I'm very pleased about that. And as I look back, the main thing I learned, and I would say this for all the listeners of this podcast, is learn to appreciate those moments when you are at some company in some legal department or even at a law firm, when everything is working, everything is going right, and it just feels like you're on top of the world. 
And I've seen those moments and I've also seen what happens when those moments go away. And it's not a lot of fun sometimes and things get really hard when the economy changes or there's a change in leadership or the company's bought. All those things are disruptive. But there are moments when it is really neat and special and embrace as I've gotten older, I've embraced those and I look for those moments and I try to take advantage of them because they're really neat and they and they make the job a lot of fun. So that's how I guess I got here talking to you. Yeah. I mean, fascinating journey, fascinating learnings. So many questions, even just from okay. <laughs> Well, fire away. Just from hearing the journey. So, I mean, you know, I think it's interesting you talk about sort of the lawyer who doesn't know it all being very openly that I think is incredibly refreshing. A lot will have changed in the time that you've been GC. Is it three times? So Sabre, Travel. Four legal departments and three times bluffing my way into the top chair. But (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, in that time, how has the role transformed? Because it feels like there's a couple of elements to it. There's the Sterling Miller transformation in terms of figuring out what and who a GC should be. But then the market itself, the industry will have changed as well. So talk to me a bit about, you know, about that piece. Yeah, no, it's actually uh, quite interesting. And I, I actually write about this in my book on showing the value of the legal department. And I call it the evolution of the in-house counsel position. There's probably a better title for it, but that's all my imagination let me come up with at the time. So when I was in law school, when, back when dinosaurs roamed, roamed the earth, going in-house was considered a dead-end job. And general counsel, at least in the United States, general counsels were generally people who were on their way to retirement, on the way to the golf course, they managed outside counsel. It was kind of an unexciting job. And and everyone in, in my law school class, we were all shooting for big law, big law firm offers. Over time, and so this would have been the late 80s into the early 90s, there was a, a recession here in the United States in the late 80s. And I think what you saw is a lot of companies start to go, hey, we have a bunch of lawyers in-house. Why don't we let them do legal work and not just manage outside counsel? So I call this the unleashing of the legal department. And they start to see in-house lawyers doing just as complicated and sophisticated work as their outside counterparts. And then the job starts to get fun and people start to get really attracted to it. And that's when I went in-house. When they, when I got the offer from American, it was clear to me that this was not what I had seen you know, six or seven years ago, this was going to be a really interesting and neat opportunity. And as the lawyers started to do more of the legal work and then interact with the business, you come to what I call the newly discovered resource. And that's when the business, the light comes on for the business and they go, oh my God, these people are really smart. They are incredible communicators. They deal with uncertainty they can make decisions on limited information. They can organize unwieldy projects. All the superpowers that lawyers bring to the table are now front and center to the business. And they're going, we got to get them involved in more than just legal stuff. And that's when I think you start to see the business want lawyers as partners to help them think about the business issues, to think about strategic issues. And as lawyers get more and more involved in that, and I certainly lived through that, 
now it becomes lawyers lawyers as leaders. And yeah. you see lawyers who, you see the chief legal officer title, which was something that was just starting to come into vogue when I was leaving the in-house world. And underneath that CLO is not only the legal function, but often it's a lot of the administrative functions of the company. It's real estate, corporate communications, corporate secretary, a lot of opera, real estate, a lot of things that don't necessarily fit as legal work, but you have a super talented person who can handle a lot and can deal with a lot of that. And from there, I think where you're headed, and I started with the dark ages, so I guess I'll call this the enlightenment, and that is law degrees. A law degree is now the new MBA. And you are seeing general counsel become CEOs, presidents, uh, moving out of the legal department completely into uh very high profile leadership roles onto boards of directors, uh, all because of the skills that lawyers bring to the table, which goes back to a something one of my law school professors told me a long, long time ago, is that if you have a legal degree, you can do anything. And at the time you're thinking, why would you do anything about the law? But over you know the course of some decades here, I've realized that, yeah, it's really prepared me to do a lot of different things, including being the CEO uh, of a law firm. So that's how I have seen the role evolve. And I think that's where it's where it's headed. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more as a fellow lawyer. I definitely think that, you know, if you're clever with what you've learned and the skills that you've acquired, you can be a true master of reinvention. You know, you can just go into so many different roles because of the breadth of the skill set. And I mean, just on that, one of the things that you touched on when you were explaining your journey is the experimentation, you know, trying new things. So you you talked about marketing legal departments, you know, to the business when that really wasn't a thing. Now that's all the rage. And I know that you've written a number of books. That's kind of how I actually came across you and your work was through the the 10 things blogs and your insights on, on all of that. And it's, you know, fascinating stuff. Share with me, you know, what was the thinking in terms of, first of all, why write? Why did you go into that? And then talk to me a little bit about some of these books that you've written, because I know you've got, I know you mentioned you've got yet another one. So, I mean, it sounds like there's a ton more books to come from Sterling. So talk to me about that. Yeah, there, there may be, uh, there may be a few more. So I have always loved writing, even when I was in you know, grammar school here in the United States, elementary school, and my parents, when I was seven years old, bought me a typewriter and I would just write stories. And I would think they were the greatest things in the world. So would my mom, but you look back at them and they're obviously written by a six-year-old, but, <laughs> but there, there's a, a, a nugget of writing talent maybe to be discovered in those very early pieces. But and that also attracted me to being a lawyer because I knew I was going to get to read and write, which are two of my favorite things. So if someone's going to pay me to do that, that's even better. But what happened with the, so let's start with the blog, because I think that really is what started the journey here that how you found me through the books and, and the blog. I had just left Sabre. So this would have been nine, 10 years ago. And I was speaking at a conference here in Dallas. And afterwards, they had a cocktail 
hour for all the speakers and the attendees, which is one of my favorite things. So I got to have a vodka soda and I'm talking to some young in-house lawyers and they start asking me, so how do I become general counsel and what should I do if some hypotheticals in different situations? And like any body, someone asks you a question, you start going, well, you know, think about this. How about that? And Cynthia, they're writing this stuff down on napkins and little scraps of paper. And I just go, wow, if if, if someone's going to write this down, it should be me. And so that was October. So November of 2014, I never, I didn't know how to write a blog. I just found a place where you could write one. And I decided that I was going to write about my experiences as being an in-house lawyer and seeing if anyone found that useful. And as general counsel, I had a, a thing that I did whenever something new would come in, we didn't know how to deal with it, which was a lot of stuff. And I would pick one or two people and I would say, hey, come on down. Let's get in this conference room and let's whiteboard out 10 things we need to know about this. And we would just brainstorm, like, we're going to need to do this. We're going to talk to this person. We're going to do that. And I just pulled that process into writing the blog. That's why it's called 10 Things You Need to Know as in-house counsel. I just take a topic and I write about 10 things you need to know about it. And it's not meant... It's, it's not an education, but it's meant to be informative, give you some practical advice and give you other options and places that you can go to get more. And I thought I would do it for a year if I could get 100 people. That was my goal, 100 people to follow my blog. That would be awesome. And here we are starting year 10, roughly 16,000 people follow it. There are more who follow it through other means other than just on the blog. But that really started everything. And the ABA contacted me and said, hey, would you like to write a book based on the blog? Sure. So I wrote a couple books based on the blog. And then I decided I wanted to write a book on showing the value of the legal department, which came out a year or so ago. And then the book I'm working on now is on productivity how to be productive as an in-house lawyer, how to get more out of your day without working a longer day, because I have a lot of thoughts on that and a lot of things that I learned. The irony of that, Cynthia, is finding the time to write the book on productivity. <laughs> but I use a lot of the things that I'm gonna that I talk about in the book and I've talked about in the blogs. I find little bits of time and I just do as much as I can in 30 minutes or 15 minutes, and then I go do whatever else it is. And I incorporate a lot of the things that I'm going to write about. That'll be out sometime uh, in the first quarter, I think, of next year. It's, it's pretty close to being done. But I've also written a cookbook. I've written a book on the history of uh, professional football here in the U.S. Football, the U.S. version where you don't use your feet, very, very typically American. Let's call it something it's not, like the World Series. <laughs> it's only American teams, but it's, it's the World Series. So there you go. And, uh, you know, I've got a few more in me after this one, and then we'll see where, where things end up. But that's kind of how the writing got uh, got started. Yeah. So I'm going to I want I've got a couple of questions uh, um, on the new book. But before that, I'm, I would love to know what's been the biggest 
the biggest outcome maybe of the writing that you didn't expect. So maybe, you know, something that you didn't foresee, but it's been really significant. So I know obviously the right, the, the blog started and then came the book, but has there been anything really out there left of field, some strange request that has come out of doing what you do with the writing? The greatest thing is I have gotten to speak with people all over the world because they have found the blog and they will email me or connect with me on LinkedIn. And, and usually just, can I ask you a question? It's usually how it starts. And sometimes the question is pretty easy. I can answer it, but a lot of times I go back and I just say, hey, can we do a call? Can we do a Zoom call or a Teams call or whatever the case may be? And because your question requires more than just a few sentences that I can type out. And I have gotten to speak with Japan, Australia, Brazil, Turkey, most of the continent of Europe, Canada, Africa, of course, Joe, just just the other day this week, Cynthia, thanks to you. And I have found that that just amazes me that I have had the opportunity to speak with people all over the world and that they have found that not only have they found the blog, not only do they read it in a language that may not be their first language? So that already impresses me because I'm stuck with one, but it resonates with them, meaning that what I write about for the most part tends to be true no matter where you are in the world, if you are an in-house lawyer. And that has been one of the biggest surprises. The same issues that I dealt with in-house are the same issues that people deal with in, in India, in New Zealand, uh, in uh, Peru. And that just boggles my mind. So I'm talking to these people and it's like, you know, the sales team thinks our contracts are too long and it takes too long to, <laughs> it takes too long to get it through legal. Like, huh, where have I heard that before? Oh yeah. Every day when I was in house. So that is really the biggest uh, surprise to me. But the, but the part of it that I thoroughly enjoy, I just love interacting with other in-house lawyers from around the globe. Yeah, no, fantastic. So the new book is on productivity. I would, so I really enjoyed and still use the measuring the value of the legal department. You know, it's something that I dip into. So I'm looking forward to the new work. Can you give us the secret sauce? Like every lawyer, not even just every lawyer, people listening to this will be wondering, you know, how do I make myself more efficient? What it, What is the hack for being more productive? So, I mean, you've written the book, Sterling. Tell us, what's the secret sauce? <laughs> well, you have, to, you have to buy the book. To, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. You know, I've written about a lot of these things in the blog. And I think if I had to, I'll just talk about three. Um, so first off, it, it's maximizing all those little bits of time. That, so that someone thing that I just mentioned, and, and here's a great example. I, back in the old days when we were in offices and we would, we would have meetings, I would go up to the meeting and usually there's another meeting already. So you're waiting for that meeting to get over before your meeting starts. And you can sit there and there are a couple things you can do. You can sit there which is not a bad thing and just re, you know, rest your mind. You can sit there, you can play games on your phone, you can crush candy, you can make birds angry, you can do all that stuff. Or if you got five or 10 minutes before the meeting starts, you can pick something and work on it. At the time, it could have been paper invoices, it could be work on an email. 
And I always chose that last option. If I had any meeting I went to, any lunch I went to, I always brought something with me because if someone was late, if something wasn't going to start on time or whatever was going to happen, I would have something that I thought was productive that I could do in those little bits of time. So finding and maximizing what I call the productive power of little things, just making little bits of progress uh, over time. Second, when you're faced with something big, and most in-house lawyers are frequently, it's all about just getting started. So uh, kind of continuing on in the, the theme of little things, I would tell my team, we do not have to build or eat the world's largest cheeseburger, guys. We can just take a few nibbles here and there and get started. So just figure out something that you can do. And as you start to make progress, even on the periphery of those big issues, it gets easier and easier. And there's a, I don't know if it's an endorphin endorphin that's released or whatever, but it feels good because you're making progress. And it's just, even if it's 15 minutes or 20 minutes or a half an hour, finding ways to just get things underway and get things started. And then the third thing that I have found is being maniacally focused on priorities. You can't do everything. And I'm a big fan of the Eisenhower two by two matrix where you have the urgent and important. And even throughout the course of the week, I would just plot as things that come across my desk, where am I putting this? And the majority of my time, so 80% of my time, it can never be 100. You have to be realistic. There's going to be things you have to do that aren't urgent and important. But for the most part, my time would be spent focused on those things in the upper right-hand quadrant because those are the biggest value. Those are the biggest impact. That's what matters the most. And if you are focusing most of your time on the things that matter the most to the business, to the legal department, you're getting a lot done, even if things, some things aren't getting done, because all parts of the business have to make those rational prioritization of resources. No one has unlimited resources, and there are things that aren't going to get done. You have to learn to live with that, and you have to just every day keep focusing on the things that really matter. That's where the bulk of your time is, and then that's how the big rocks get broken up and the ground gets cleared. So we're going to, we talk about all that and more in the book. So note to self, go get the book. <laughs> when it's ready. Yes. You, I'll, I'll be, my mom and I will be hawking them. So <laughs> That's great. Sterling, I want to ask some big picture questions just around, there's a number of things right now that are almost buzzwords. It doesn't mean that I don't think people are true to them, but you know, there's a lot of talk about innovation and embracing diversity. And I would love to just get your take both as a GC and CEO of a law firm on, first of all, how can a legal leader foster a culture of innovation within the team or within an organization? And then secondly, how important is this whole focus on diversity and inclusion in terms of, you know, building the legal department of the future. Wow. Those are big ones. So let's start with, let's start with innovation. If you follow the blog, you know, every summer, every August, I write about cool tech. I've always been a fan of technology, even though I'm not the greatest 
user of it. I'm not a computer programmer, but I'm, I'm kind of Joe average when it comes to technology, but I love to try things and failing for me is that's just part of the deal. And you have, you can't be afraid of, of failure. So when it comes to innovation, I think number one, you have to be curious, which is a superpower most lawyers have, or you wouldn't be in this business having that curiosity and then hiring people who are naturally curious. They want to learn about things. They want to understand things. And they're not just satisfied with, you know, I'm in this little box and that's it. They, they want to know more. They want to do more. So that curiosity leads to innovation because people are thinking beyond just the little place maybe that they have in the legal department or in, in the law firm. And they're trying to figure out something something more than what they've been assigned. Uh, constantly evaluating, so number two, constantly evaluating what you're doing. Why are you doing it? How are you doing it? And most importantly, does it make sense to keep doing it this way? And it's really easy, especially when time is short and there's lots of stuff going on to let's just keep doing what we're doing, guys, it's working. I always made time as general counsel, and I do this now even as CEO, at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, if I can make it work, to just kind of sit down and think about what, how are we doing all these different things and does this make sense? And one of the best examples are contracts. Most contracts that people work with have been around for five, 10 years. And if something new needs to be added to the contract or something changes, what lawyers typically do, and I'm guilty of this, I'll raise my hand, we just bolt it on. <laughs> it's an addendum. We kind of stick it in somewhere in the miscellaneous provisions, and we hope it all works out because that's the easiest. What you really need to do with contracts, I think every five years or maybe even more frequently, is really sit down and think about, does this contract still work? Do we need to rewrite this? Do we need to blow this up and start over. And I have done that in the past. And for me, that always led to a much better contract, a much better agreement for the business because it was really brought current based on the realities of what we were facing. So I think that willingness to evaluate leads to innovation. And then my favorite, though I'm, I'm as bad ab about this as most lawyers, and that is learning how to truly delegate and letting other people do things and getting the hell out of the way and not trying to micromanage because someone else doing something that you already know how to do, they are probably gonna bring a different viewpoint. They may bring some different skills. They may bring something completely different that it's an aha moment like, wow, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't realize we should think of it that way. And that's another place. Uh, where you get innovation, and that's by just letting others do things and being humble enough to go, <laughs> yeah, my, my way may not be the best way. What, what else have we got out there? And I would constantly challenge my teams to tell me, if you think we're doing something in a way that's inefficient or not the best way to do it or just stupid, tell me. Uh, you're not going to get fired. In fact, you're probably going to get a pat on the back. I may not agree with you, and that's fine. It's going to be a civil conversation about that, but I do want to hear from everyone. And I think people feeling comfortable that they can challenge the status quo and not get yelled at, not get put in their place, quote unquote, all leads to, to innovation. That's what I think. And then for diversity, you can almost tell the answer to that based on my last answer. Yes, 
because the more diverse and the more inclusive you are in the legal department or in a law firm, you get those different experiences, you get those different viewpoints and different ways of looking at problems and solving problems that lead to better results. If your legal department reflects the makeup of the company and the company reflects the makeup of the community, it's just a, I think it's just a better situation in terms of serving uh, all of those needs, the shareholders, the employees, the community by being diverse. The, the hard question when it comes to that is how do you get there? And my plan has always been, hey, let's have a great place to work. It's fun. It's challenging. It's rewarding. It's open. It's free of politics, meaning I don't care if you're left or right or middle or whatever, as long as you're a good lawyer and you're, and you're not a jerk, that's a great place to work. Giving opportunities to people and understanding if you are working with, like with a global legal department, for example, in some cultures, you know, raising your hand and bringing forth your opinion is not the natural state of affairs. Unlike the US where we will raise our hand, we won't even raise our hand, we'll just give you our opinion. Understanding how different people function and are comfortable and as the leader, you know, hey, ask them for their opinion. If you ask them, they will give it to you. If you wait for them to do it, they probably won't. So making them feel uncomfortable, making them feel comfortable, including them. Uh, and then, yeah, I'd say just being a mentor and not, if, if people make a mistake, if people do something that for whatever reason doesn't work, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times the natural reaction is, is basically to punish people. Uh, and that punishment can be anywhere from very mild to severe. And I've always believed that if someone made a mistake, bring them in and go, hey, here's what went wrong. Here's how you can fix it. Let's do better the next time. Do you have, do you have any questions? That's what people did for me. When I was a young lawyer, I can remember one of the first things I wrote as a young associate at a law firm, this motion, it was long, it was incredibly well researched, all kinds of footnotes. And the partner came in and <laughs> it was like 20, 20 pages long and he counted off 15 pages and he ripped off the back and he threw it in the trash. And he said, no state court judge is gonna read more than five pages, you need to do it over. And at first, I, I'm literally shocked. And then I thought about it and I said, you know what? I bet he's right. And I went back and I realized how much fluff I had put into that. And I realized how much tighter the writing needed to be. And he would work with me in terms of how do you write as a lawyer, not someone who just came from law school. It's very different. And same thing when you go in-house, it's very, how you write is very different. But taking the time and showing people and not just going, oh, you're hopeless. You're, I'm done with you, which unfortunately I think is how a lot of people approach members of their team that aren't, don't quite get it. I just believe the number of people who are truly hopeless is minuscule. Everybody can be a, a contributor to the success of the department. You just have to find their skills and what they're comfortable with and pull that out. And that's how you get a diverse and inclusive uh, legal department or, or law firm, in, in my opinion. Such a wonderful response to both questions. And actually, Sterling, one of the things that I really genuinely enjoy about conversations with you is it's always very practical 
And you always explain things in bite-sized chunks so that it, it's so digestible. Like I find, you know, either when I'm listening to you train or even just in this conversation, I'm writing stuff down because I'm like, oh yeah, that's a really good way of, <laughs> of looking at it. And I, don't, I, I don't know whether that's associated with that slightly traumatic event of having 15 pages chucked in the bin. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite shocking, I have to say. But... It, it, it worked. It, it's it no, fantastic. It yeah, to learn from you. I've got two final questions that I round up with, and they're they're really about you. You know, I'm always I love reflecting, I love looking back, and I always love asking my guests particular a particular question about their younger self. So my the first question is, what would you have done? What career do you think you would have pursued? if you hadn't become a lawyer? And then my final question is, what advice would you give 25-year-old Sterling? Okay, okay, so the legal career fails. What would I have done? I think I was perfectly situated to be a lawyer though. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer from a young age. I remember creating a lemonade stand when I was nine or 10 years old and I had stock we sold stock in it for a dollar. I made these stock certificates up. Yeah, that's that's a weird childhood, but that was me. And but if not, I think my dream job, other than being a lawyer, which is my dream job, is I would be a history professor. I love history. I listen to history podcasts all the time. Uh, I just I'm just fascinated with history, and I think those lessons that you learn from history even at the big level, right, world history, or even just history of the legal department or the history of the firm, those all help you uh, be, become a better lawyer and certainly a better person. So history professor would have been number one. If that wasn't in the cards, I would have been probably a failed, but I would have been a musician. I play guitar and other instruments, and I've been in bands most of my life, and I found that just to be so much fun. And uh, that's that would be uh, that would be high on the list if lawyer wasn't wasn't on the wasn't on that list. My 25 year old self. So 25 years old, I'm in law school. I think I would say pay attention to class in tax and competition law because I didn't. <laughs> Those turned out to be two of the things that I, I spent a lot of time on as general counsel, tax issues and competition law issues. And I'm kicking myself for, for not paying attention. And then I would say, don't make up your mind so quickly. I think um, there's a lot of pressure. And I, I suspect this is global, but certainly here in the US, there's a lot of pressure on you, even coming out of high school, to pick a career, to pick a path, to be set for something that, you know, you're going to be doing for 40, 50, 60 years. And uh, that's hard. And I told our, so with our girls, our daughters, who are now both successfully graduated, thank goodness, it was pick something that you're really interested in. And if that's, if you find out a year into it that you're not interested in it, make a change. Let's not be stuck with what you picked. When I went to college. I originally was going to be an engineer because that was what was the hot job back then, engineering. And I sucked at it. I sucked at math. <laughs> and I could have continued down that path, but I knew in the back of my back of my head and in my heart that I really wanted to be a lawyer. And I just 
change. I just changed majors. I need to go to law school. I was did a lot of liberal arts classes and I knew I was going to go to law school. So not being locked in. And even when I went to the law firm, I started off in corporate law because that's what I knew I wanted to do. Thought I knew that's what I wanted to do. But after a year or so at the firm, I found that the people on the litigation side were way more interesting <laughs> and a lot more fun and that I had a real knack for I don't know, I guess getting up in front of judges or juries and talking and explaining things. And I had a lot of opportunity to do that. I got the first chair of jury trials, which I loved. I loved getting up. As you probably can tell, Cynthia, I like talking and explaining. And for me, that was heaven. Getting ready for trial is not heaven, but the part where you're in court, I still miss that even 30 years uh, later. So not don't make up your mind up too early be flexible do what you really want to do and don't let anyone else tell you what you should do you should you should decide for yourself and i, I think if you stay true to that north star you will find yourself uh in a in a, a job that you really like in a position that is very good for you that's really at the end of the day you know being happy being excited to go into the office every day. I still get excited, Cynthia, every day. I love turning on the email. What's this day bringing? What are we going to, what problems are we going to solve? Uh, what clients are we going to help? Uh, that just really excites me. And I know I'm very fortunate to be in that position. So that's, uh, that's, that's my advice to my 25 year old self. Oh, so wonderful. Thank you, Sterling. It, I mean, this is, it's, like I say, I so enjoy our conversations genuinely, and I really appreciate the fact that you are so generous um, with your shares, with your insights. So thank you so much for spending time with me on the podcast today. And yeah, very excited to see what the future holds. I think it's the, the fact that you're so enthusiastic still for all that you do and you know all that you're involved in keeps us certainly engaged and enthused in like manner. So yeah, keep up the great work and thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you, Cynthia. I, I appreciate being asked. And uh, I don't think my expiration date has hit. So I'll be doing this for a little while longer, but, but someday they'll go, oh God, not that old dude again talking. And that's when we'll, that's when we'll really hang up, hang up the cleat. But I'd appreciate all of those kind words very much. So thank you. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.